I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Professor Rob Virchik, climate change scholar, former EPA official in the Obama administration, Loyola Environmental Law Chair, and author of the new book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. Virchik will talk about what resilience looks like today and how the concept can be applied to protect South Louisiana in particular. Professor Rob Virchik, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot. All right, so can you explain the premise of your book? Yeah, well, so it starts out with with a story, right, which is the title, The Octopus right. in the Parking Garage. And it comes from a, an actual event that happened back in 2016 in Miami. This guy, <laughs> his name was Richard Conlon. He lived in a really fancy condo complex on Biscayne Bay in Miami. And he walks out into his elevated parking garage, and he sees a big pool of water by his car. And in the middle of that pool is this big, undulating, completely alive, <laughs> octopus oh my right? and he starts taking pictures and it goes and it goes viral right and, and so and that's how i first learned about it but the but the basic problem was it was a climate change story right is what happened is there's a, a a drainage conduit that goes from the garage down into biscayne bay there's this unfortunate uh cephalopod down there who's who's trying to get some food at the at the entrance of that or the exit of that uh drain and a big king tide that was amplified by sea level rise pushes him unexpectedly all the way up to the drain and and into the parking lot. Wait, so what's a king tide? A king tide is a is a is an extreme uh, seasonal tide that, okay. it, that occurs because of the way of the phase of the moon and so on. Gotcha. And um, so they get the, they got the animal out. They got it in a bucket and and, <laughs> and back in the bay. Oh, that's good. The octopus lives. Um, the, the, the octopus lives. And I started to think, uh, a friend of mine and I, a, another a colleague at Berkeley, we, we wrote an op-ed for the Miami Herald about this. And what we said is that the octopus is, a, is an eight-arm alarm bell mm. uh, for climate impacts. Because if we can't keep octopuses out of parking garages, what else can't we do? That's, that's what I thought. Right. So, uh, you know, this ended up turning into a larger project about about building resilience and preparing for climate impacts um, all over the United States. Uh, and so this book has chapters on wildfire, coastal restoration, uh, chapters on coral restoration, right. uh, diving in, in the Keys, which I did to do some research on this, and, and just all kinds of ways that we not only can, but are adapting successfully to climate change. And so this is something we can do if we set our minds to it, right. we have the technology, as they say, we just have to have the mindset. And that's what this book is about. Understood. And I saw that you, you write that it's important, obviously, to solve the problem in the long term view with reducing emissions and all that. But in the, in the short term, we have to deal with the effects that are here now. That, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's not a it, it's not a contest between whether you're going to reduce greenhouse gas or whether you're going to adapt to climate change. You do both. You, you, you manage the risks that you can't avoid. 
uh, and then you also try to avoid the risks that you can't manage. All right. Well, that's obviously very relevant to life in South Louisiana. And I'm curious, you know, you've, you have a prestigious career that's taking you all over the place. Uh, now you're here, you're based in New Orleans. Did you, did you come here by choice? Did you want to be on the front lines? Or how? Oh, I definitely came here by choice. Yeah, I came here in 2004. There was a, um, a, uh, an endowed chair in environmental law at Loyola, which, I'm, which I was happy to be hired for and, and loved uh, working, working on, on the issues related to that. I came here in 2004, which, if you're counting, was about nine months before Hurricane uh, Katrina. Uh. And, um, and so we went through the whole thing. My house was underwater like so many other people uh. and, and all of that. And, and we evacuated and my kids you know, went to school and, you know, on the West Coast for a while uh. and then came back. But when we decided to come back, and it was a deliberate choice, um, I thought to myself, I am going to spend the rest of my career working on preparing for, for climate impacts. And, and, uh, and so I have actually had the opportunity to help develop a nascent field in disaster law and climate change adaptation. I've uh, written a lot of books with a lot of really great people on that. This is my first book for a popular audience. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. And I want to move this conversation forward. This is what my career and my the rest of my professional life is about is is about uh, preparing for climate change. Well, we're glad to have you here then. And um, as we think about Southeast Louisiana and what's happened over the last three years uh, with the with the with the several major storms coming and causing billions of dollars uh, worth of insurance claims and damage, uh, can, can you talk about what we're seeing now in Southeast Louisiana? And then let's and then we'll talk about some potential strategies and solutions. But um, you know, what have you seen over the last few years, and how does it relate to your overall uh, observation of what's been going on because of climate change? Yeah. Well, so first of all, no surprise to anyone, this is a really vulnerable place mm -hmm. uh, to live, and it's vulnerable for two reasons. One is it's vulnerable geographically because of it's in the eye of, or it's in the crosshairs of storms and these kinds of things. And now with climate change, it's, we've also got sea level rise. So all of those are, are, are geographic risks, right. I guess you could call it. Um, and we have really serious uh, social vulnerability risks. We're a poor state. Uh, we have pockets of people who are isolated and don't have access to, to proper medical care, political power, all of those kinds of things. By some measures, we are more vulnerable socially even than geographically wow, okay. here, here in Louisiana. Um, and I imagine those two are related, right? I mean, a a absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you go back far enough, right? I mean, even indigenous populations here are living in very vulnerable areas, not necessarily by choice, but because of decisions that were made in the 1800s about, right. uh, about Indian removal and, and so on. Uh, and, the, and the same with other, with other groups. So we're in a very vulnerable place. Uh, we are on the fastest sinking chunk of land in the world, uh, <laughs> probably, uh, by, by some estimates. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything. And, and the things that we can do to be resilient have to do uh, essentially with, I, I, when I teach about this and write about this in my book, I say it's about resistance, it's about adjustment, and in some cases it's about retreat. And so we have a $14 billion plus levy system, uh, which is a really great levy system. It's designed, uh, you know, to, to protect us. And we've got that. That's resistance. Those wetlands, which are just as important, are protecting us. Um, the adjustments we have to make are things like building codes and elevating 
uh, right. structures and uh, and abiding by uh, evacuation protocol and all that. That's adjustment. And then retreat really does mean sometimes deciding either to leave a place or just as importantly, not building in places that are the wrong place to, to build. We've done that so much in the United States right. and, and in particular here in, in Southern Louisiana. So we are gonna have to think very seriously about where people live and how to do that in a fair, voluntary and humane way. Well, should we talk about those in order? Uh, sure. Uh, and and uh, how, you know, how some of these things can be applied. Uh, I, I will say, well, not necessarily in order. I had a conversation recently with a Home Builders Association representative, and this person mentioned to me that the vast majority, 90 plus percent of the insurance claims uh, that resulted from, from Ida and the other, the other recent storms uh, were the result not of roofs being completely ripped off houses, but because of some shingles peeling away and allowing water to intrude get through the seams beneath the shingles and then soak the interior ceilings and then destroy the contents of the house. That, he said, was the 90-something percent of all the damage and all the claims. So to, to address that, there's, there's a thought that we need to have a, a updated building codes that mean stronger roofs where the shingles don't peel away and the water doesn't intrude. And uh, unfortunately, uh, after Ida, there, there were thousands of roofs replaced already in southeast Louisiana, I think 20,000 or something. And they were all done to an older code, a 2015 code, which does, is not going to address that problem. There is now a new code that will address the problem. And he says, um, with these different building techniques and the extra expense, probably five to $8,000 per roof, you can prevent that from happening again. And if, and if the insurers see that, the insurers will say, well, this, this is a risk worth taking again, even if some percentage of the houses have this. So uh, I felt like that, that was hopeful to me because it was here. If you build this better or just build it smarter, uh, you can mitigate the some of the risks to the homeowner and the insurance company, and then s solve this this huge crisis, which is the expenses are getting so high that the the homeowner affordability is going to be uh, the the biggest challenge. Yeah, I th I think that's right. First of all, the research is really clear on this: is that stronger codes prevent more damage. Mm. Uh, uh, Florida, which which uh, depending how you how you slice it, is either first or second in in, in the most protective codes, has proved this time and again. Um, Louisiana, I, I think all said and done, we're probably somewhere in the bottom of the top 10 in, in terms of, of, of having building codes designed properly for hurricane and other kinds of storms. So we are still in the top 10, just at the bottom of the top 10. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I think we're eight or nine, depending, okay. uh, depending upon who, who is doing the ratings. Now, um, one of the things, I, there are actually two things, right, that are related that are really important is one is that uh, political leaders have a hard time pushing their constituents to want codes that are stronger because they're more expensive, right. right? And then you've also got the issue of even if you do that, you're going to have people who, who don't have the money either to, either to uh, add these new things on or they've got older homes. I mean, that's the other part of the story, right? right? And, and so you're saying, well, if something's damaged, then, then replace it immediately because everybody needs their roof to replace it, you know, very quickly. Right. Um, and, and, it, and it's hard to monitor good worker conditions and and and, uh, and all of that so uh, the bottom line is I think you need stronger standards you need just as importantly 
really good training of the people who are going to be involved in the construction and good monitoring. And actually where Louisiana falls down in these ratings that I'm telling you about is they, they lack the capacity to train the people okay. uh, and to verify that people have been trained. And so those kinds of things are just as important as the standards. So that's a system thing right there. It's just that's right. figuring out a way to train and monitor the process of putting in the stronger, more resilient construction methods. That's right. I mean, again, that seems solvable. You know, it, 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 it's one of those things, though, that uh, you have to have the political will and the, and the ability to get it done. Well, and I think it, it, so you, you have to have the presence of mind in this. And so, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I, in, when I start writing, in, what, what, I, what I open in the book was different meanings of resilience. And, and meaning resilience in the context of climate change, as I'm discussing it, is bouncing back, but bouncing back better. Being able right. to, to sort of endure a punch, if you will, right. and then recover from it in, in a more robust way, right. in, in a way that that keeps your character intact and, and it allows right. you to go forward. And, um, and that's very similar to psychological resilience or emotional resilience. You go, you know, you get out of a bad marriage or you leave a, a job that, that, that was traumatic and, and you have to find a way to be present and think about where you are uh, in your life and make choices that move you forward. And I think the problem with so much of resilience work is we don't want to face the issue, either because we think it's too scary or too expensive, right. or we don't know what to do about it. Right. Uh, when in reality, you know, there, there are steps. You know, the first thing that you would do, whether you're a person in your own household or whether you're a, a leader in government, is you would, you would want to assess what your risks are. You'd want to, you know, sort of sit down and think, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at right. at, at this moment? And then you want to um, make choices about how you could reduce those risks in cost-effective or efficient ways. And then when you make those changes, you want to monitor them and learn to see whether what you're doing is working or not working. Right. And then you need a way to build that in so that you learn again. And, and the, the problem in a political system, particularly in democracies, um, is that politicians they, they hate to take action that fails. Okay. You know, they hate, you know, no one is going to elect a politician who says, we're going to try my plan A, and if it doesn't work, <laughs> we're going to think about what plan B is, and if that doesn't work, right. we're going to change it to plan C. Nobody wants that. They want to know, what is your plan? Tell me it's going to work, and I don't want to hear about it again. Right. I'm just going to vote for you. And, and that's, um, that, that's difficult because that's not how life works. That's so interesting. All right, well, let's talk about some of the some of the specific uh, approaches that to, to fighting climate change that are happening in South Louisiana right now. One is let's talk about the the coastal restoration projects uh, that are that are ongoing or, or or the one that's about to begin. And what do you think about the the, the hopefulness or effectiveness of those? I, I think it's it, it's an extraordinary moment for Louisiana. Um, we are engaged about to we, we we have launched what is probably the most ambitious uh climate resilience project in the world um, we have scientists from nasa and the best uh, uh coastal people at, at lsu and we have engineers uh, from the netherlands and all over the world people are coming down here creating jobs investing lots of money to learn about how you uh preserve uh, what in North America is the largest coastal wetland uh, 
that we have, right, all in the state of Louisiana. Now, we have $2 trillion worth of material assets here in southern Louisiana, most of which are protected in some way by this coastal system. Uh, we lose, according to Entergy, we lose about, the economy in the Gulf loses about $20 billion a year just because of climate-related disaster and mm. subsidence. And so we have to do something about that or there is no future uh, down here in, in southern Louisiana. The good news is we are doing something about it. We have a $50 billion plan that we're still trying to fund. But the idea is that, uh, among other things, if we divert water and sediment from the Mississippi River into certain lobes, certain areas of the wetlands, that we can rebuild these again and at least regain some of the 2,000 square miles that we've lost in the last uh, 70, 80 years. Um, we can do that, and I think we should do that. Um, but the thing that we have to understand is it's not a one-and-done solution. You have to keep maintaining this process, and at some point, we are going to start losing wetlands no matter how fast we build wetlands. And so 200 years ago, or 200 years from now, this process might not be doing, uh, building the wetlands that we want. It buys us probably 50 or 100 years. And one of the things that we have to do is think about, is that worth it to us for another 50 to 100 years? I think it is, but what I, what I want people to understand is that, I mean, this is true of Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, you name it. Um, these are ongoing projects. We are gardeners at this point, and, okay. and we are going to be gardeners for the rest of the lives of these communities. And just to be clear, uh, is the reason that it's essential and it's an existential crisis that the the loss of the wetlands is because that is the bear that's what protects us from the water? Is that that's right? Okay, that, that's right. Well, it, yes, it's it, it, it's uh, we call it an, a, an ecosystem service, an ecosystem that that provides services, economic services for us. It protects, um, it nourishes the. Um, the fisheries, in other words, you know, a quarter of all the fish I think that Americans consume are related somehow to the wetlands. Right. Uh, and um, and it protects shipping and a, and a load of other things. So yeah, without it, you know, our economy would 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 be tanking. And right. It's not not just necessarily the buffer from the storms. It's also all the other economic benefits that the wetlands provide. Yeah, and this incidentally is. Um, I, you know, I don't want to be woe is me about Louisiana because this is the story of the United States. Uh, there's a study out of Stanford just very recently that said that uh, uh, by the end of the century, if we don't do anything to address climate change, the U.S. economy will lose half a trillion dollars a year. Uh, mm. and, and that is about as much as economic growth, right, which is to say if we don't do anything – at the end of the century, our economy doesn't grow because we're losing so much. Right. Now, the, the project that we're talking about, by, by the way, is, is this this is the mid-Baratarian sediment diversion project? That's, that's part of that project. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but uh, so that's just one piece. What what are the other pieces of that? Well, there are there are several pieces that that, that are involved with diversions. Okay. Uh, in, in the same way. And okay. They, and they all have you know uh, 
controversies, if you will, or you know, tension depending on who wins and who loses in the short term. I did hear from I saw a press release from some of the uh, oyster oyster folks, sure, who are not happy about <laughs> not no, they're about not the plan uh, because it's changing the salt content of the water, the salinity mm -hmm. of the water. If you're moving fresh water into certain places, they have leases which are fixed in in, in space. And, uh, and in some areas, uh, it, it's going to be better for oysters. In some areas, it's not going to be as good. And the same with fisheries. And, and so the long-term idea is that, well, this will sort itself out. But right. in the short term, there are people who are making boat payments and, and, trying, to, and, and trying to keep uh, food on the table and these kinds of things. And so I actually think that's a role for government to help uh, keep this distribution going because it, it, has, to, it has to happen. Right. Understood. Yeah. All right. Well, so um, now let's talk about the power grid. Mm -hmm. I, I know that uh, th there's been some unflattering comparisons with some other states uh, after recent storms. Um, you know, you, you get that that frustrating feeling where you feel like we end up on the bottom of all the all the, you know, the wrong lists. But um, so w what condition is our power grid in and what do we need to do? to prevent another tower from falling in the Mississippi River the next time we have a hurricane and losing power for three weeks? Yeah, well, the power grid in the United States is very vulnerable to climate change. Um, and incidentally, I've been doing work in Australia on this, too, and I'm here to tell you that their power grid is vulnerable to really? climate change, too. You know, wildfire and storm and floods and, and, and the rest. So, again, it's not like there's anything special about us. Uh, but we do have a very old power grid, right. and we do have uh, – Billion, tens of billions of dollars in deferred maintenance on this thing. And, um, and so what we need to do in Louisiana and well elsewhere, there's sort of three things that we have to do. We have to harden the grid where we can, which is to say to protect it from impact. Um, we have to smarten it, which is to say we have to employ uh, technical solutions involving uh, computer technology and communication so that we can divert uh, power demand away from from places where you know it's failed um, and reroute electricity in, in logical ways and then the the third thing that we have to do is we have to green the grid and the reason we have to green the grid which is to say put more renewables online mm -hmm. is one that reduces greenhouse gases because we have to do that if we're going to have a chance at adapting uh, but the second reason uh, is that as it turns out renewable energy is much more reliable and resilient in these times for instance during hurricane um, sandy in new york uh, in new york city all of the natural gas powered um, power plants failed they were on the water they were right. very vulnerable they all failed mm. what didn't fail were any of the wind turbines in in the northeast right. uh, they shut down while the wind was blowing when the wind stopped they all went back online when the strong wind stopped they all went back online right. and everything was fine right. so um those and solar panels incidentally you know they withstand hurricanes uh, and so on and so forth and these are the uh these are our ticket to uh to resilience uh, right. down here in the gulf Okay, so the, the grid. Uh, uh, now, just just to clarify, there's there's different risks in different parts of the country. I, I, is, I'm just stating the obvious, but the risks here are essentially wind and water. Or am I missing one? Yeah, no. Well, it is it is wind and water yeah. for sure. Yeah, in other places it's fire, right. you know, whatever. But so it's interesting because obviously you you moved here right before Katrina. You like 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 you, I also lost my house, and. Um, 
that wasn't a wind event really for us. It was, you know, there was there was a little bit, but uh, we it missed us primarily. And then it was obviously the water that did us in. Uh, and then it's, uh, you know, so all the attention was on the levees, and they built this. How many billion was it? Yeah, fourteen plus. F- fourteen yeah. plus billion dollar levee yep. system. Uh, that's great. And then and that's the one bit of there is one bit of positive news that after the storms of the last three years that we didn't get water. Uh, which that's great, uh, but like <laughs> our grid was destroyed, uh, power's out for weeks. Uh, but then, but then more alarmingly, you have the problem with the wind. So, and, and and what that's led to is is the the current insurance crisis, which is a housing affordability crisis. I actually got I have a, a envelope sitting on my kitchen counter from Citizens. You know, sure, the, the state yeah. insurer of last resort. And I, I just, Don't we all? <laughs> I just decided not to open. I didn't want to see because I know this is this is the month where the the the, 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 the bad letters are going out. But so there's uh, um, let, let's talk about we talked a little bit about building codes and, and and but what else can be done right now, short term, long term to address the insurance crisis, both flood and homeowners and then the housing affordability crisis that that's that that's creating. Yeah, it, it's a really hard problem okay and so a a lot of people actually don't understand the origins of the of the national flood insurance program right it it is a subsidized program for sure and about a quarter of users around the united states are, are are taking advantage of that subsidy the the reason we have a subsidized plan is because the other part of this program uh requires covered communities to have good building codes and to enforce them and the problem is, it's the federal government that, that funds the insurance mm-hmm. subsidy part, and it's the local governments <laughs> that are responsible for proper land use and all of that. And, um, and so those two things don't always work together. Right. And the history of this program is that local communities have not been as good at promoting good building codes and enforcing land use restrictions and so on and so they've made their people more vulnerable and the federal government keeps paying for it right right and so uh, and so what do you do about that well right. well one ex- you know one attempt is what congress did and the reason that, that incidentally fema is is changing its its mapping systems that people are complaining about down here they're doing it because congress told them to right right and congress said we want you to have uh, have, have more detailed mapping and we want these rates to go up uh, gradually to to get to what they call an actuarial rate, which is the true cost market rate, of, yeah. the true cost of your risk. And uh, and the idea was, well, people will get these big payments, and then they'll say, well, I'm going to move somewhere safer, right? Which which makes sense if you're an economist, I get. But I guess so they're re- literally trying to raise the rates enough to get you to, to oh, change that, your behavior. That's completely the idea. Yeah, yeah. Now the problem, right, is that we face is that a lot of these people, a lot of folks, uh, you know, middle class folks too, and and you know they can't afford this. And so, what you're going to do to lower income people for sure is you're going to say. These insurance rates are at some point so high, no one will buy your home, which is another way of saying this this asset of generational wealth that you have is worth zero. Right. And the bottom's going to fall out of, of that part of the housing market, and it's going to be devastating. And, and so what needs to happen is, in the long term, what needs to happen is some kind of way, I think, of, um, of means testing some of these subsidies because you can't just let everybody 
uh, throw everybody out of the nest at once, right. and those that have wings get to fly, and those who don't, you know, just dive bomb. Um, on the other hand, you can't just continue to subsidize everybody because right. we're, we're tens of billions of dollars in the red in this program, and there's no way to recover. From well, when you when you look at the footprint, like a map of New Orleans, it, what are the sections of our metropolitan community that that they're raising the rates because because they want people to clear out? Well, it's it's generally speaking, the places that are below sea level, right? right? So about half of our city is below sea level, as you know, when there are natural ridges and places like the French Quarter that are a few feet above sea level, or, you know, or the part, parts close to the river. And, and these areas have always been the, the, the less vulnerable places to be. Uh, but the government, the federal government, the state government, the local government spent a lot of time over the years encouraging people to live in places that are just aren't safe. And so right. my view is that all of, you know, the government bears some responsibility for that, too. Right. I mean, yeah, what's scary about that is it, it, it sounds like at, at this federal level, there's this tacit approval of of shrinking the footprint of New Orleans over the next decades. I mean, that's what that sounds like to me. And that sounds like that the uh, the scenario that I heard a few people say recently, two different people talk about a potential future for New Orleans is going to be uh, it's going to turn into Key West uh, where where you basically sections of the city are depopulated and you end up with this small island of wealthy historic homes. Uh, and then the, and then a lot of the economy just just moves yeah. moves to higher ground. I mean, that that but that's you know, that's a that's a pretty depressing. Scenario. Well, so but these are these are choices. And, and, and here is something that, that that I talk about in the book a lot. Right. Is that. There's no question that human beings are going to adapt to these impacts. Um, the question is whether we're going to do it in a methodical, thoughtful, humane way, right. or are we, is it just going to happen uh, when, when, people, <laughs> when people get their insurance bills and, and just start moving where they want? Right. We, we're looking at probably 12 million people in the United States who live on the coast. We're looking at those that number of people moving uh, in probably in the next 50 years, according to federal estimates. And so what we could do is just say, well, let's just let all those people just go willy-nilly wherever they're going to be, and they're going to bust up uh, school districts when they all show up in a certain city and, and this kind of thing. Or what we could say is we're going to be deliberate and we're going to plan about this. And, and when we decide that there are certain areas that we think would be safer for people to move we're going to we're going to put in resources there make housing affordable make transportation routes uh you know develop things at a county or a parish-wide basis or a statewide basis and we're going to because we it's not going to happen tomorrow i mean we've got 50 years we've got 100 years um so we could plan this in a way um, that would make sense and be fair and would avoid. I don't know that we have to live like Key West in, in New Orleans, but it is true that there are some places that we probably should say we don't want so much more investment to go to these places, but maybe to other places. But we can't just say, oh, well, the people who can't afford to be in those places don't get to live there. We have to have some way of ensuring that everybody's welcome and that everybody has has services and accessibility to, to housing and and uh, jobs. Right. And I mean, one thing, you know, one point against the notion that 
you know, the, the, the economy is just going to pack up and move north is that, um, I mean, we have the, we, we have the port. <laughs> we're, the, we're the mouth of the Mississippi River. And, you know, we, we are responsible for sending out so much of the, you know, the grain and other commodities from America to elsewhere and then receiving a great portion of it. And we're a huge, yeah, we're a huge transportation hub. And that, and that is, as you point out, waterborne, but also if you look at trucking routes. And rail, yeah. And rail. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, there's there's no avoiding a presence here. Right, uh, it, it's just it's just too too strategic. And incidentally, that is often true of uh, of port cities and of delta cities all over the world. They are vulnerable to a, to a number of, of things exactly because they have other features that make them incredibly important to society. Right. The same reasons you want to move there and, and, and build there is the same reason it's dangerous. That's right. I mean, I'm thinking about – it was during Ida that I uh, – I don't know. This is kind of a ironic place to go, but we, we ended up having – you know, have to leave for that week after because yeah. no, there was no power. We ended up – we went to Galveston, and I'd never been to Galveston, Texas before. And while I was there, I, you know, just learned the history of Galveston, and, and, and this is a – a oversimplification and B probably wrong because I'm just doing it from memory. But it seems like Galveston um, years ago was was the center of activity, and that was going to be what Houston became. And then after after that horrible you know storm and some other and, and other threats, it just it, 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 that's exactly what happened. They just took the, the 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 population and everything else and just moved it you know to higher grounds so. right and, and wealthier people live in galveston and, <laughs> and the people a lot of people who work in galveston live on live on the mainland right interesting and right? Uh, because it's not designed for that my my ida story is i actually stayed in new orleans because oh. um we recently had installed a, a natural gas generator for our oh house. wow nice. and uh, it was the first time we used it it worked perfectly it worked for many many days because mm. as you know we didn't have the electricity and and i had a new insight because people all in my neighborhood uh, who were still around i invited over to store their medicine oh, to store some of their food to charge their phones it became a little community hub almost and and it really struck me, obviously, that that's the second disaster when you lose when you lose power and you can't even pump gasoline at the gas station right. because there's no electric uh, pump. Uh, the, pu the electric pump's not working. Yeah, everything stops. But that that community that you created that's that's pretty great, you know. Yeah, and I I was I just wish we had more of those. There, right. was, there was more ability, and and we could do that incidentally with something like microgrids. You know, connected with uh, solar panels or something. If you had a community, if you had a if you had a school in your neighborhood uh, that was armed with uh, solar panels that could run independently of the grid, you could you could power not only a school but maybe part of the neighborhood or right. something like that. Now there is a group. I'm gonna. I don't remember the name, so I can't say it correctly. But there's a group working on a plan to have the, uh, resiliency hubs ba yes. based on restaurants here in town, where they're trying to make you know a certain number of places with solar power where you can go and charge and get. I've seen that. AC. Yeah, and and we're talking about they were talking about that in Australia where I was doing work it, it, and. Uh, it's a and in in Virg I happen to know there's a, a school district in New Jersey that actually or not New Jersey uh, yes New Jersey um, that um, put in solar panels uh, on their on their buildings and uh, they use it for classrooms you know even when there are power outages but they also use it for shelters and things like that too. right yeah. right okay so here we are we're looking at just just very practically speaking uh, I've just got a couple more questions for you. Uh, 
<laughs> it's 2023. We don't know uh, what's going to happen this this storm season. Uh, you know, and I, I think everyone's earnestly hoping and wishing that we we get none. But um, and w- you know, which is certainly one possible scenario. But um, you know, we've got the insurance crisis. We've got the beginning of this massive coastal restoration um, uh, project. Uh, just short term. Speaking, thinking short term, what are what are examples of good policy and good behaviors right now that 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 uh, city and state government can do, and even the federal government as they think about New Orleans and all the infrastructure work that's happening? Like, what what are some things you'd like to see happening now over the next few years, uh, even as we're dealing with the bigger the bigger issues? Well, we have first of all, there. The good news is there is a lot of federal money available right. for lots of different work. And um, I actually serve on uh, Governor John Bell Edwards' uh, Climate Initiatives Task Force, uh, which is mainly designed uh, to, to create recommendations for reducing heat trapping gases. And one of the things that we are trying to do is make recommendations about how to make the best proposals to get money from the Biden administration, from the, right. two, from right. the two statutes that are providing money f- uh, for uh, – renewable infrastructure and so on. I think one of the, you know, here, here's, a, here's an issue that, I, that I'm thinking a lot about right now. Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge has a, a really hard time controlling its stormwater right now. Okay. And, they, and they're actually in violation of federal law for, because they cannot manage their stormwater. And so they're having sewage overflows mm. and it's, it's creating public health hazards. This has been going on for years and years I and years. And uh, they know what they have to do to fix it, which is that they, you know, there's a whole plan where you could put in more infrastructure and have better drainage with landscaping and so on. But it's going to cost millions of dollars a year to maintain. And it's very hard for them, to, the political leaders, to come up with a way right. to fund that. And, uh, and if they don't fund that, they're going to be fined tens of thousands of dollars every time there are violations by the okay. federal government. And so they're really in a in a tough spot. But I think that communities like Baton Rouge, communities like New Orleans, have to think, have to be willing to find ways to raise revenue uh, in order to protect their people in the long run. Uh, Otherwise, people aren't going to want to live in a place where the roads always flood and and where your toilet is always backing up. Right. And I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that so I, I think storm stormwater. Uh, yeah, they're under a consent decree. I mean, they're under uh, federal supervision right now, and it's a really scary thing. I think for the political leaders there because they don't know how to raise the money. They do know how to raise the money, but they're afraid to because it's it's about increasing fees. But right. we're going to have to be more open and transparent in our governing systems about the cost of the things that we want, and about finding money raising money for that and that you know we can say again oh well what was me living in louisiana we have these problems and of course we do uh, but this is an issue that every state in the country is going to be dealing with because right. adapting to climate change is going to cost money right all right my last question for you as you look at this whole situation that we've been talking about what makes you worried and what makes you optimistic? And now, based on a conversation we had before we got on the air, I'd say uh, you can distinguish between optimistic and hopeful. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll do that first. Um, 
so people sometimes say, oh, well, I sound like I'm optimistic or maybe I'm optimistic. And I'm not sure because uh, to me, optimism means that you have a foregone conclusion in your head. You, you, your foregone conclusion is everything is going to work out all right. right. Uh, and I don't know that it will. Uh, but I do know that it could uh, and that it's plausible that we can build a society, even down here in New Orleans, in which we are surviving and thriving, although it might look different. Uh, I think that's possible, and I think that as long as it's possible, it's my job to work as hard as I can to get there and to encourage other people to work as hard as they can to get there and to talk about these issues. So um, what do I fear? Uh, you know, what I fear is that right now, uh, I'll just say, I'm encouraged that I think we have good uh, political leadership in the state that's geared toward reducing heat-trapping gases attracting money from, uh, from federal funds in order to improve our infrastructure and to push coastal restoration. Um, I, I think that if we don't do those things, it is not worth living here. It will, it will not be worth living here. But I think that if we do double down on reducing heat trapping gases and coastal restoration and so on, um, I think that we have a chance and that we could, that we could uh, thrive here. Um, I fear our political leadership. I just fear, and this is just not Louisiana, but anywhere, is you have to have consistency in your political mm -hmm. leadership. These are long-term problems, and they require long-term commitments. Well, we've been talking to Rob Virchik, a Loyola professor and the author of The Octopus in the Parking Garage, A Call for Climate Resilience. Is this available everywhere? This is, uh, yeah, you can pre-order it right now online and uh, at the New Orleans Book Festival on March 11th. I will be signing real copies uh, that people can buy. Fantastic. Well, it, it looks it looks like a, uh, a great book, definitely worth reading, and thank you for writing it for, uh, for general audiences. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Rob Virchick, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.